What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. I loved working on that team. Our manager was awesome and I'd run through walls for them. That's a common sentiment amongst anybody that spent time in a team environment through their professional life. We remember those great leaders that we worked for. Time passes and then we get promoted. And then what happens? We forget every single thing we learned from those great managers. Why does that happen? In a lot of instances, it happens because we expect people to become great through osmosis. And that's definitely the case in a lot of organizations when it comes to equipping their line managers for success. We allocate all of our development resources at the highest tiers of organizations and leave our line managers to flounder around in the dark. We need to fundamentally rethink how we're developing our leaders. Those are just a few things that Bernard Coleman has on his mind when he thinks about building high-performance teams. So who is Bernard? Let me tell you a little bit about him. He's currently the VP of People at Swing Education, where he leads the people function. In that role, he works to enable best-in-class employee engagement, spanning performance management, career development, succession planning, retention, and recruiting, and onboarding processes to create operational stability. He's a thought leader and influencer of impactful HR practices. He supports business objectives and collaborates with cross-functional leaders to identify future skill and talent needs as well as acts as a thought partner to the CEO and COO on how to advance Swing Education's mission, vision, values, and strategy. Prior to Swing, Bernard served as the head of employee engagement and chief diversity officer at Gusto, where he led the employee engagement team, which encompassed DEIB, employee relations, people integrity, governance, and compliance functions. Prior to Gusto, Bernard led the DEIB efforts at Uber to embed diversity, belonging, equity, and inclusion at scale across a company of over 28,000 employees globally. He was instrumental in helping uh, evolve Uber's culture. In addition to his work at high-growth startups, he's been involved with the Hillary Clinton for America campaign as the first-ever chief diversity and human resources officer for any presidential campaign for either political party. And he's spent a long time working within uh, political circles throughout his career. He's been featured in Forbes, Catalyst, Sherm, Time, TechCrunch, HuffPo, you name it. Bernard's probably been featured in that. Bernard Coleman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Jim. I appreciate the that warm welcome. Glad to be here with you today. If I'm thinking about all the guests that we've interviewed, you're probably bringing one of the more unique perspectives to the show. And I think that gives us a nice springboard to talk a little bit more about the lens that you view the world. What I'd like you to do before we get into the meat of the discussion is share with our listeners a little bit about some of those key moments throughout your career that informed your people strategy and philosophy that's going to help advance this conversation and give us some perspective. What has really helped inform my kind of like my my leadership worldview is I worked in politics for the first larger portion of my career. So I was close to leaders 
every day, leaders of the House of Representatives. So I got to see them up close, what leadership abilities I thought were great. And it was just interesting to see what is leadership and through the political lens. And then when you think about it through moving into tech, it looks very different. And so I just I felt like I've had the unique perspective to watch leaders and pick apart their strategies and then take the best parts of those and try to apply them in my leadership philosophy. So I say from Congress to I worked in state government, I worked at uh, the Society for Human Resource Management, I got to see all these different types of leaders. And I think sitting at the nexus of those things has really informed what I think leadership is and what it isn't. I, I just think I've had a very, I'll say I'm very blessed to have seen it. And that, that's typically what I like to write about just because it's so fascinating to me because a lot of everyone's attracted to leadership. Even like I write for Inc., uh, I notice most people read about that more than culture. And I'm fascinated by it. People are fascinated by leadership, and so am I. So I think that's how my leadership philosophy came to be. One of the things that I find particularly interesting about your background is the difference in pacing among all those different organizations that you've worked at. When you look at the pacing within state and federal governments, when you look at pacing within political campaign organizations, compare that to pacing at high-growth startups, you're talking about pretty distinct paces within those organizations. What took you by surprise when you're looking and evaluating leadership style and adjusting for pace within the organization? Were there any trends that stood out that you thought were interesting? So when I worked in on campaigns, it's very similar to startup in the sense of it's scrappy. You have to be really quick about things. You don't have a lot of time to respond. Obviously, you want to be thoughtful and intentional, but it's a very fast pace. State government, on the other hand, is very slow, right? It's like trying to turn the Titanic. And so you could be a little bit more deliberate because state government is, by nature, it's, it's, it's a lot of procedure and policy before you could even move anything. And even then, this, the changes you put into place might not happen for years, right? Campaigns, it's, it's finite when it's going to end. You have to move quickly. Otherwise, you might not be in contention anymore. With startups, it's a little different because there are, I won't say there's an end in sight, but there's milestones and there's periods and sprints that you have to go towards. And so that, I have found there was a lot of similarity between a campaign and a startup. The only difference is the finality. The campaign will end and you move off and go to the next thing. With startups, there'll be this big thing. Maybe it's a launch, maybe it's an IPO, but it's very much, you have to be scrappy, you have to move quickly, and you have to be really agile. What leaders can ha actually handle and what altitudes they can fly, that's what's been most fascinating. Uh, and understanding to apply that altitude. Do you need to go fly low? Do you need to fly medium high? Do you need to fly high? So it's interesting that you mentioned the concepts of levels of flight. And the, the reason why it caught my attention is that having never worked within the political sphere, I might be off base when I say this. But when I compare what life would be like theoretically in the political space versus what life would be like within a high growth tech startup space, and that's the space that I know really well, there's this balance of optics versus impact that you have to strike. In the political realm, everything is filtered through the lens of optics. How is this going to impact our constituency or what's the messaging going to look like? And when you look at high growth startups, the focus is on impact and, and, and being iterative and, and, and advancing whatever that mission is to that next step. What did you notice about striking the appropriate balance uh, between optics and impacts that served you well? It's very, it's a very different environment. When I remember coming from politics, I'm not going to say it's quid pro quo, but people remember what you did for them. If you looked out for them, you can cash that in later on. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like people remember that you were helpful and they might be helpful to you because of that. I think in tech, it's very, 
you're moving so fast. You really have to understand the language, how fast they move, what the objectives are. And so the way of politics, just, I don't think it really applies. Uh, I think also because in a high growth startup, talent is such a commodity that you can move very quickly. You can stay at a job a year and move to the next job and you'll never see those people again. So it's the relationship that you're building in politics don't necessarily translate to, I think, the world of technology. I think it's impact, it's value, and adding that immediately, and then being able to move the pace of change. So I think that's the difference. It's less relationship-based. It's, it's almost a little bit more transactional because the goals are different, right? Constituencies, voters, political campaigns, and all the different things that are my, might be on your platform are very different from a product that you're trying to launch, uh, the market share that you're trying to advance into. It's just very different. And so I think while some of it's translatable, you really have to understand when is it about relationship, when is it about transaction, when is it about value, what is it about impact. So it's the same combination of things, but the percentages are different. That's fair. When you're looking at life in a high growth startup and you're trying to apply a talent strategy, what you describe seems very moment to moment. How do you build a cohesive talent strategy when you have such immediacy in the pacing within a high growth startup? I think the most important thing is what's the order of implementation? What are you going to do first, second, third? I think that goes without saying, but a lot of times you could boil the ocean trying to do all the right things, the best practices. So you really do have to say, what are you going to do first? When are you going to do second? What are you going to do third? And it's a mix of short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals that you want to get done. And I think coming into any environment, one of my mentors said to me, if we're speaking about the pace of change, you don't want to introduce so much change that it causes disruption. Uh, the other thing you want to do that I've found that's been really helpful is broadcasting what you're going to do. Uh, I'm a big fan of managing expectations and saying, okay, first I'm going to do this, second I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that third. And then you try to deliver to those actions. But I think the more you could include people in your stream of consciousness, you've effectively managed your expectations, you're saying what you're going to go do, and you're controlling the pace of change as opposed to allowing the tail to wag the dog, right? You do have to define what you're going to do, deliver on those things, and go after the next things that are on your list. Otherwise, you're putting yourselves in this doomsday cycle where you're you're undelivering and you overpromise. So you really have to manage those expectations and move at the pace of change. And then also be prepared to change. So let's say the thing you prioritized was key a month ago. Now might not be, but being prepared to pivot and bringing the team along on that pivot so that way they don't swirl. Going to swirl and can't manage through the change. Because one thing I found working in tech, it always is change. It's a, change is a constant. So you just have to get used to that. At first, it feels uncomfortable. But once you get used to it, you're less wedded to what you wanted to do and just, you're just ready and agile and ready for those moments. You mentioned a couple of things that I want to key in on. One is the issue of prioritization. You have to identify what's first, second, and third in terms of what you want to tackle with being very mindful that you're not boiling the ocean and becoming disruptive. So that's important. And then you have to communicate the pace of change. So when we think about being able to do those things, identify and prioritize and also impact change and communicate the pace of change. Where do organizations often go wrong in what they prioritize and how they communicate? Yeah, I think what's important is qualifying it. So a lot of times people say, okay, I know what I want to change. And then they take it to the audience, but they haven't thought throughout the mechanics of what that change entails, all the people might involve, how people might react to it. We always talk about change management. What does change management look like? But there's some ordered steps to it. First, who do you tell about this change? You want to get buy-in. You want to make sure people feel good about the change. You want to get their input so they're more amenable to doing these changes you're asking. Then you go to, so maybe that's the leaders. Maybe that's the executive leadership team. We're bought in. Then there's the senior managers. How do you all feel about it? Get their input. But you're basically creating this comms cascade of what you're going to do before you take it to the larger audience. And you let them know what they should expect. 
There should be an ask in there. There should be a who, what, when, where, and why. So that way everyone understands why we're doing it, where we're going, what their role is in this change or this rollout. And then so everyone's more or less aligned. And then you can hold people accountable to those changes because everyone knows they're part in it. You got their buy-in. So they're more apt to do the things you're asking them to do. And then you have to deliver. So now like you have to institute, let's say quarter one, we said we're going to do X widgets and then Y widgets in quarter two. You still have to deliver and report back just because I've seen a lot of things go poorly where we roll it out, we announce it, and we don't revisit it. We don't even touch it. So you go, what was that for? Uh, and I think you lose kind of a bit of, you lose trust in that process. And you just, was that just busy work? Why do we do that? So I think it's really just bringing people along in the journey. And then if you can manage those expectations, I'm not going to say change is handled perfectly, but it's definitely handled better. We've spent so much time talking about the change management process. How do you communicate change? One of the aspects that makes really strong line level leaders is their ability to communicate the change, all the reasons associated with the change, and also what that future looks like. Unfortunately, it's very rare for people to build that skill organically. And when you look at organizations and a lot of dysfunction that happens within those organizations is due to breakdown at that line manager level. How is that related to some of the things that you've seen throughout your career that cracks the code of building high performance teams? Yeah, it's like that game telephone when we were kids. You'd say something in one person's ear and by the time it gets back to the initial messenger, the message is garbled. It doesn't even make sense to what was initially shared. And I think that's what happens on companies, right? So the executive level, they're quite clear on what they want. They've discussed it. They spent the most time with it. And then when they start to convey it to the rest of the company, it doesn't translate as intended, right? Things get either misunderstood, misconstrued, and then you wonder why you can't execute. And I think it's because people don't take the time. They presume that the line managers that I've hired are simply going to get it. I think we need to spend way more time with them and invest more so that way they can truly understand and then implement what you're asking them to do. And I think that's where uh, things fall apart. The most effective leaders I had, first off, they would include me in the stream of consciousness. They'd say, hey, Bernard, this is why we're doing X. The outcomes we expect to see would be Y. Your part in this is this. And I want you to structure your day around that. And then I, I knew clearly what I stood I knew clearly what I need to do and how I contributed to the larger mission, but it made it crystal clear in terms of like, how am I contributing to this effort? I'm not going to say it was command and control. It was more, I've given you the outer boundaries. You're painting within those boundaries to make you more effective. And I think we don't spend that enough time really explaining our rationale as to why and qualifying what we're going to do. It's not to say you have to defend your work, but I think if you give people more of the, that prep work up front, they're more likely to go do what you need them to do as opposed to, I was unclear. Now you're coming back to me asking more and more questions when I could have just been more comprehensive in my answer at the onset. So I think a lot of times that's the breakdown is in the messaging up top and then not in the lack of follow through. Like you do have to hold people accountable through the follow through. If you're not following through and basically helping them see their part in that, then that's where the breakdowns happen. So every manager I've ever had that where we've really succeeded, they brought me into the conversation and made me see exactly what I needed to do. So it's interesting that you mentioned not only the clarification of what needs to be done, but also the follow-up components, those seem pretty basic. I'm curious to get your insight into why more often than not, those sort of conversations are left to chance. Why is such a basic step ignored? I don't know. I think people just need to make some uniformity, right? Let's say there's a big initiative, effective kickoff. When I'll use an example. One time I was doing a diversity report. The kickoff brought in everyone who might be involved, whether I need you on day one or day 300. Everyone's at least involved. They're let know what their involvement in it is going to be or what, what I'm going to ask of you. 
when you should be coming in into in terms of the, the journey and those milestones. Because I don't need you to come to every meeting. I might need you to come to a meeting halfway through because that's when your portion of, if we're fabricating a building, I don't need the electrician on day one. I need someone to lay the foundation. So it's really helping people organize and understand where they come in. So I think the first thing is an effective kickoff. So that's managing expectations of where people should be. Then two, conducting meetings that creates the follow-up, right? So there's a project plan or maybe there's a, a project brief under, helping people understand their pieces, what the actual goal is, what those milestones and, and critical moments are, and then checking in and holding people to it. And that way, again, if the, back to the example of fabricating a, bu- a building, everyone's coming in when they need to construct what you're trying to construct. I think a lot of times it's not the follow-through isn't there. And then I think the second part is the reactive piece. So that's the formal project we're working on. And there's all the stuff that you didn't know was going to happen. So I think when and people reacting, they they put their attention towards that as opposed to the larger project we all committed to. So I think it's balancing the reactive and what we committed to. And I think that's, I think, a struggle that I see sometimes where people have difficulty prioritizing what they're supposed to be doing. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. So I want to pull on that a little bit more. And we've had this conversation offline where I've posed this question to several executive leaders. How important is it to have highly effective line managers? And just about everybody says, oh, it's so critical. And then when I follow up, why isn't it done more often? You and I were talking about this offline and you mentioned two big issues. Executive leaders and senior leaders don't have time to invest at the line manager level. And then the other thing that you've mentioned is that it isn't really seen as valued. And I'd like your perspective on why those two objections or bottlenecks exist, because the downstream impact of having really effective line managers is so obvious. It surprises me that executives and senior leaders don't really readjust their priorities to focus at that. I think they're shortchanging themselves. If you don't take in time to invest in your people, it might feel like a lot, like I didn't hire you to coach you. But the reality is when we, you were talking about the great managers you run through a wall for, like they invested in me. They made time. If I had questions, they would carve out extra time to make sure that I was set up for success. And so I think I get more leverage from my team if I make more time for them. So that too goes to the prep work. If I prep them and I get them ready, they give me more leverage as a result because they're better equipped to handle what I'm going to give them a little later on. And that's why you have to prioritize. After hiring people, you leave them to their own devices. They're not going to get it through osmosis. You have to develop them. You have to pour into them. You have to share some of your best practices. Because many times when people join companies, they did join to work with that leader. Like the mission of the company matters, the impact you're going to have in the world. But look, a lot of times you join a company to work with that particular boss because you're hoping to learn something from them. It's a give and take relationship. So you have to prioritize it. I, I try to work it into my teams with development plans, what are the goals they're trying to achieve? And so you work it into our one-to-one. So that way, it's this mutual piece where I'm actually investing in them. It's prioritized to what they want to learn and also where I need to take the business. So I think it's really just making the time because we're all short on time. But if you really want to get the leverage from your people, you got to invest. And I think it's also important to value it. I think a lot of times we don't see, even though we appreciate it as a recipient for my manager to be investing in me, when we deal with our teams, for whatever reason, it's not valued as much as it should be. But I think having being an excellent coach is extremely valuable to to your staff. It helps people stay on board. They don't leave because they're growing so much. They're learning so much. They want to stay. So I think 
it's a huge unlock if people really take the time to do it. I like your point about the importance of coaching when it comes to building that capability in your managers. Tell me a little bit about how that actually can free up senior leaders and executives to do higher value work if they're investing time in developing their managers to be better coaches. A lot of times at the strategic level, you're setting company strategy. There's very high value, high impact work that you have to deal with. It requires considerable heads down time to even get done. Meetings, heads down time. But then you can't have that time if your team isn't able to deliver what you need them to deliver. If I have to then come in and manage your work in such a hands-on way, then I'm not able to do the strategic work that is required of me and it becomes I become stretched. So it's really about, again, if you want to help build this person up, if you are then enabling them, empowering them, equipping them, like if it's resources, if it's training, that additional time, if it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, or each one-to-one, you've enabled them and empowered them to take on more in terms of the professional real estate that they're doing. So that way they give you more leverage. You're getting time back as a result. And so what I've done is I really try to invest in my folks, particularly at onset. So let's say it's a newly formed team. I want to know what your strengths are. I want to know what your weaknesses are. Maybe it's Myers-Briggs. Maybe it's one of those different assessments to understand what are your talents? What are your communication styles? It helps me understand what does the team need? What do you need as an individual? And then once I can do that, we can then create a better development plan. But the, the goal is one, to help you grow as, a, as an employee, but the other is to give me leverage. And so once you're more equipped and I know you got it, I can back away. You have the widgets. You're going to handle that. You're going to deliver on this. I can spend more time on the FY24 planning so I can deliver this for the business and then provide the structure and the OKRs and the KPIs for the rest of the team. But if you don't do that, it's almost creating this vicious cycle where they're regularly coming to the boss, asking them to solve their problems rather than self-solving. And so you're also, you're creating this crutch, if you will, on your own team of making you be the center of it when you really actually want them to go out and be autonomous and grow and get empowered and take on and develop new skills as opposed to coming to you. I had a boss like that where they were the, the center of the story. And by not hiring people or equipping them to have that le- give them the leverage, they stayed in the middle of things and it impaired their ability to fly as high as they needed to. They didn't, I don't think they realized it, but it, it, it impaired the whole team because we had to go to that boss for questions and answers instead of empowering us to go do, right? So it's a delicate balance, but I think if you can equip your folks, it frees you up so much. I've had some teams where I, like, I poured everything I had into them and it allowed me to do the critical actions I needed to do. And it was just, and they appreciated it because they knew that I invested in them. It was a mutually beneficial effort and it could work quite well. A lot of what you said is really powerful, but there's one aspect of it that I think I want to emphasize a little bit. So when we're talking about technical teams and we're talking about an implementation project, oftentimes if you're in a vendor customer relationship, customers always want a single throat to choke. Who's my one point of contact that's going to solve everything for me? That works great in sort of these project plans or implementation plans where you have that vendor-customer relationship. There was an aspect of what you described where if you're the leader that's at the center of everything that goes on and you're the throat to choke in terms of the team being able to get things done, that's problematic. What can leaders do? Get themselves out of the center of the storm. What are some actionable steps that they can put into place so that their teams are more empowered to lead from where they are. I think leaders who put themselves at the center of everything create a single point of failure. What I've seen happen is, and I can answer, get directly answer your question, is when I'm at the center of things, peers, colleagues will go to that person because they, they, they know they get it done. Maybe that's the leader. Instead of empowering their team to say, I thank you for bringing it to me. You should take it to X person or Y person. I'm basically redirecting 
like a conductor, go to Maria, go to John, go to Steve, go to Phyllis. So that way, those who are coming to me recognize I've empowered these folks on my team to adequately address whatever it is you're seeking. And again, that frees me up and gives me more bandwidth because I've now my team's giving me more leverage and then I can go focus on those things. If I stay at the center of my own story and I address all those different people's needs, I'm creating a, a logjam right, within the organization because ha- you have to come to me instead of my team. You have to be able to trust your team because why, did, after all, did you hire them to not do their piece? So I think when people put themselves in the middle of it, there's ways to stay you know, informed. You can look and use whatever systems you have to see. Are the OKRs moving the way they should move? But you, put, you shouldn't put your, yourself at the center of it. You should empower your team to address those different pieces. And if people keep trying to come to you, say, redirect to that person who is the point person for the set initiative. I think that's, you're also modeling and mirroring what you want from the organization. I'm modeling that you should trust my team. I expect my team to mirror it, to take those, going to take it by the bull by the horn to go do what they need to do. And then again, it frees me up to go do the strategic work that I need to do. A lot of that's predicated by what the leader does and, and, and the team will respond in kind. So I think the one aspect of what you described where you're redirecting those inquiries to people on the team that are equipped to doing it, it relies on you as the leader knowing the capabilities of everyone on your team really well. Which brings me to the next thing that I'm curious about is you talked earlier about how one-on-one should be leveraged as coaching opportunities. Unfortunately, a lot of one-on-ones are used as status updates or project updates instead of actual development opportunities. What can senior leaders and executive leaders do to better structure their one-on-one so it's more focused on development rather than status updates? I've played around a lot with this in terms of feedback and how do you encourage that? So I in one organization, I did this thing called the Feedback Five. The first five to 10 minutes, just us giving each other feedback. And it wasn't a one-way thing. It's also to create, to them to give me feedback as well. So the whole point of that is, one, I want to establish trust with my team. So that way, not only am I giving you feedback, you can feel empowered to give me feedback. Well, a lot of times we talk about psychological safety and what does that mean? And I think a lot of times people weaponize psychological safety. But the whole point I want for my team is you can trust me to give this feedback because I want to grow as a leader. And I want, I think your feedback's valuable to me as if I in that endeavor. But that way, also, I can give them the feedback and they know, hey, this is out of a place of trust. I know you're ambitious. I know you want to be successful. I'm giving you this feedback to help you grow. And before you even doing all that, you want to have a professional development document saying, all right, what are your goals over the next six months to a year? What's your five-year goal? How can I help you get there? What do you want? What do you want to achieve over the next six months? And so when you take the time to really get to know somebody, maybe you've done the Strength Finders, the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs, that it, Myers-Briggs. So I know your strengths, your weaknesses places you over-index where you're under-index. I know your communication profile. I know your preferences. Then I also know what you want to get from this company, from this relationship professionally. And then I'm building in time to actually talk about those things. And the reason I think this is important, it really does, it, it creates a quality assurance and in the moment. So by doing the feedback five, I'm giving you feedback in the moment. So it's just, it's moderate improvements you're making along the way versus sometimes it'll be like performance reviews. Six months have gone by, we have not talked about it and I'm unloading on you. It makes it very difficult for me to take the corrective actions to get on course to either grow professionally. Maybe there's something I'm not doing. I haven't even had the chance because I have, this is six months of data I didn't have to process and then put into action versus, but the one-to-ones that I have on my team week over week, I could make these little process improvements and get to where you need to go that align with your goals and mine. So I think it's really about it's ordered steps and being consistent. Your point about consistency is really important because I think uh, a lot of organizations and a lot of leaders don't have those feedback mechanisms built in with enough repetitions for it to be meaningful. 
Uh, I'll often ask uh, leaders, what's their current performance management or review process? And they'll say, we'll do it twice a year. And really, if you're looking at making any sort of incremental change at the individual level, two formalized sets of feedback periods isn't going to be enough to have meaningful changes. And in fact, if that's the only time that you're actually talking about this stuff, you're probably going to catch a lot of people flat-footed because they're not used to having a temp check on a regular basis on where they are relative to where they're supposed to be in the year. Great stuff so far. I'm pretty interested in taking this conversation to the next level. We understand the why and the what we need to be doing as uh, senior leaders and executive leaders. The, the piece that we're missing is how. So if we're saying that managers at the line level are left to their own devices are, and are out on an island, How do we fix that? How would you advise other senior leaders to create space and resourcing and availability for those line level managers to become much more effective than they are and shorten that learning curve so that they're being much more effective in building their teams? It's a package of things. So I do think you want to get that professional development template just to understand who do do they want to be when they grow up? So how you can align their interests in terms of the goals that you have for the company and for themselves and make those two intersect. And then two, you want to carve out time in your one-to-ones, either in your one-to-ones or have a, a specific touch point within, let's say you do a one-to-one every week, maybe one of those one-to-ones in that given month is just for development. Uh, and that way you're having a constant conversation. So again, you get to performance review time and this isn't a surprise or you never talk to me about this. I think then thirdly, uh, if organizations can afford it, but professional development budgets, right? So what are you doing to grow professionally and what we talked about in your professional development document? Because they have to still take the initiative to grow. So they should go and do, is it a SHRM conference? Is it a world at work? Is it a HR transform? But what are the, what is the venue where you're going to go grow? And those are HR specific, but what are you doing to go grow your, your craft? And then I think the other thing is you want to then model it. Like, this is what I'm doing to grow. I think sometimes people feel like they need a permission or an example. Let's say I have an executive coach or a leadership coach. I'm working with them to grow my own capabilities. I don't have all the answers. I think it's making them feel okay to grow in this regard and recognize that growth is a continuum. So I think those are some of the tools. And that goes to the consistency, locking it in the calendars. Uh, I think the final thing is, I think having offsites, talent offsites, and really understanding a certain amount of dedicated time just to like, how are we growing our talent to show that this is an invested in, this is important. If your organization is big enough, I think having a learning management system where you can actually help them grow and learn is super helpful because that way, like it, you're creating a learning and development culture as opposed to, we care about your learning and development when you got here, but then when you get here, it's not, it doesn't matter so much. I think if you can encourage folks to keep growing, that they know that value can be developed internally as opposed to I need to have, bring all the value to get me hired as opposed to then that, that value is no longer valued once, you are, once you're on board. Because I've, I've grappled with this and thinking about, let's say I went to all the best universities in the world, that shouldn't end there. The, the, the education and growth process should continue at work. So I think it, it's multifaceted, but I think it's putting all those things in place, helping that growth. The emphasis that you put on the IDP, the Individualized Development Plan, I think that's a really strong point. I think one of the gaps that I'd like you to help us navigate is this. Oftentimes, those dollars are allocated at the highest tiers of an organization, and they tend to get pretty stingy at the manager level. So if I'm a manager who wants to go to a conference or who wants to invest in a coach, oftentimes I'm left to my own devices to, for, for doing that. What are some of the things that you would argue managers need to be bringing to the table so that they aren't coming out of pocket for some of these development needs that they have to, to advance their career? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I used to work at the Society for Human Resource Management, and I believe it was Section 127 under the IRS code, which allowed for a $5,000 at the time reimbursement towards educational needs. So Sherman would front us the money, but they would get reimbursed, I think, through the IRS process. And I remember I was getting my MBA at the time, and, and there was two other colleagues. One was getting her MPA, another one was getting another master's. But we were all actively going. It was encouraged. And it was through this program that, that was backed by the IRS that allowed the not only the, the company to derive value, but me as the employee deriving value and the achievement of getting my MBA. So I think you, you have to get creative, right? A lot of times you can possibly write some of this stuff off and encourage people to, uh, to go get their education and pursue it without it breaking the bank. So that's one real life example where I use that $5,000 for two years running to pay, help pay for, to help to defer the cost of my MBA. I think the other ways are guided learning paths. We will give a certain amount of money that contributes to the company's bottom line by taking these learning paths. So I think it, goes, it falls to the HR team, but defining what those learning paths should be, how it's beneficial for this person growing in role. So then it's helping to deepen the investment. And I think the argument could be made is this person is this much more valuable because they have gotten this SPHR or whatever credential that was empowered by the organization. So that way we didn't have to go out and hire someone. We built this channel, this internally. So I think I think the value add is also the internal mobility piece, the internal advancement piece. By investing internally, you could say, I say, because you can quantify how much it costs to hire somebody externally. But when you invest internally, you save a, a ton of money. So I think that's how you can help leaders understand the inherent value and the savings that you had from investing your people as opposed to going out and hiring someone and not even knowing about that person because they're not a known commodity versus the person here who's willing and wants to grow into said role because what their professional development plan is. So I think there's a lot of ways to qualify it, to pay for it. You just have to get creative. And then again, go with them on the journey to hold them accountable. Like you said, you're going to go do this. You took this class, you took this course. How's that showing up in your work? You have to reaffirm it. I wasn't uh, even aware of the tax implications on, on development and how that can be leveraged. So that was pretty important. I like your point about growing your own talent. And I think a lot of organizations and a lot of leaders ignore that at their peril because they're often finding themselves going to market after somebody has left and paying 30, 40, 50% more to bring that talent in versus spending that time to develop that on their own. So Bernard, really good conversation. I appreciate you hanging out with us. I'd like you to reflect back on this entire conversation and think through the theme that we're talking about. And that theme is empowering line level managers to be much more effective. So when you think about that arc of the conversation and you want to highlight the two or three most important things that listeners need to keep in mind on why this is important and the impact that it can have, what are some of the things that come to mind? I think first is if you empower the, the frontline managers, one, it makes them be better equipped to handle anything that might be thrown their way. It gives you, if you're the senior leader, more leverage so that way you can focus on the things you need to focus on because the shop is in good shape and they can go run with the things that you've given them. So it goes to investment. I think another like benefit that people don't think about is I'm more loyal because I'm growing at the company. I see opportunities for me to like get this credential, get this new responsibility. Also for succession planning, leaders aren't going to stay forever. No one stays forever. If I have an extension plan within the company, I'm investing in the bench. Because uh, I think that a big thing that I see happen all the time is because if you're the center of your own story, when you leave, it is very difficult to replace someone because they have not equipped those around them. But if you're really a senior leader committed to this work, you want to build a bench so someone can ascend into your spot once you leave and so on and so forth. If you don't underinvest in those, that middle management, 
you're destabilizing the business. If you really care about doing a good job, you don't want to destabilize the business, you want to enhance it. And I think the other part is a net promoter score. I think people who are loyal to their companies, they have those, I had a manager I'd run through the wall for. I was able to grow. I was able to learn. I was able to contribute. I think those things really matter and add to the larger employee engagement. You want to have a good employee engagement score and a good employee experience. All those things add to that. So I think when you, I think the arc is make these investments now and often, be consistent, hold your people accountable to the, what they said they wanted to do, and then give yourself more leverage by investing in your people. Great stuff, Bernard. If people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? You can find me on LinkedIn, Bernard Coleman on LinkedIn. And then if you're interested in what I'm talking about, I write our article a month on Inc. And you could just look me up. Bernard Coleman is the, the column called Culture Code. So either of those two places, feel free to reach out. Appreciate you hanging out. And when I think about the conversation that we've had, I think the idea of investing in your line level managers is often a forgotten concept or an ignored concept within organizational effectiveness. And it's always struck me as pretty interesting because when you think about the biggest reasons why people join or leave organizations, and you mentioned this yourself, it's often the manager that has the biggest role to play in that churn that happens at the line level. So the idea that organizations aren't investing heavily at the line manager level has always confused me a little bit as far as a missed opportunity. When you're thinking about building high-performance teams, and especially those teams that have the ability to pivot, iterate, and grow, all of that starts with how well-equipped your managers are to steward their people and get their people in positions to be successful. When you're looking at the things that are critical for organizational success, the ability to pivot, the ability to be resilient, the ability to operate at a high pace, and also the ability to be loyal and grow within an organization, it becomes even more clear on why leaders need to invest at their line level managers, because you have all of these downstream benefits that are getting lost because you don't do it. The big lesson for everybody listening is that if you really want to build a high-performing team, a lot of that effort needs to be focused on creating really strong management tiers at the line level because they have the biggest impact on the people that are doing the work. So for those of you who have hung out with us and listened to the conversation, we appreciate you uh, tuning in. Let us know what you thought of the conversation. If you've liked this conversation, make sure you check out our HR Impact community. You can find that at engagerocket.co slash Impact. And then tune in next time where we'll have another great leader sharing with us their game-changing insights that help them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.